cliffcentral.com. The wine industry and the champagne industry is the only industry that I've ever been involved with or, or been part of where competitors help each other and try and get a product that is desirable to a broader market. Hi everyone and welcome to Market Share. This is where I chat to people who influence the way brands are built, big brands and small. And I'll spend some time on small brands as I believe they are the future of South Africa. I'll also cover many other interesting marketing issues going forward. So, what do you drink when it's time for a celebration? And what's the familiar sound that goes with it? That's right, champagne. Today I'm joined by Nick Davies, the man who started Weatherly's, the furniture business. He's now a champagne maker or sparkling wine maker or MEC, what's it, MCC maker, I'm I'm not sure. Nick, what the hell are you doing in the champagne business? Well, Reg, firstly, thank you for inviting me on your show. These forums are always great to interact and, uh, and have conversations. So... I used to spend a lot of time in Italy and France um, when I was sourcing products for the furniture game. And I got quite captivated by the whole lifestyle surrounding the wine industry in those two countries, particularly the way they, they eat, the way they celebrate, and the, just the whole connection that they have with, with wine and champagne. And I decided that I would look for a similar sort of environment in South Africa, and we stumbled across uh, Franchuk. And that's where we settled and started making MCC. My wife is a, is a very keen champagne and bubbly drinker, so she was quite influential in that decision-making. And here we sit in the beautiful Frontier Valley and consuming and making uh, sparkling wines. So what do you call it? Do you call it champagne? Do you call it sparkling wines? Do you call it MCC? What's the correct term for a South African product? Well, for South Africa, we've got the name MCC. But what does that uh, mean? That means Method Cup Classic. So let me just be clear on that point, that the method used when we designate MCC would mean that it follows the champagne production exactly. We don't stray from the way it's produced in France, and we use the same varietals of grapes being Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, and the process is the same. The bottle is fermented. The second fermentation is in the bottle. It's left on the lease for two to three years. So let's go to the champagne. So really the only difference is going to be in the terroir or the soil because at the end we're making the same product. So, But just to be clear on this whole champagne issue, you know, unfortunately most people, the word champagne does slip out, but technically we're not allowed to use the word champagne. So let me just sort of enlighten you a little bit about, you know, what champagne stands for and how it is, uh, is controlled. So when you go to France to the Champagne region, it's clearly demarcated as to which areas are Champagne and which aren't. And it was fascinating for me to go there. You'd be going along a road. One side of the road is Champagne and the other side is not Champagne. So that's how closely it's protected the areas. So just a little bit of history about that. In the early 1900s, they were trying to keep a control on the quality of, of Champagne And what was happening, grapes were being brought in from outside areas and the wine produced in Champagne. 
but they were bringing the grapes in at a cheaper price to what the Champenoise people were producing them for. And that caused a huge, huge eruption in that industry. So at that point, they then decided to clearly define what you could use as champagne. So who are the big producers of sparkling wine or champagne in the world? And, and where do we fit in as a country? Okay, so I've, I just drew out a few statistics because the statistics are interesting. So just to be clear, when we talk about sparkling wine, that is just the way the wine is made. So even champagne is sparkling wine. So sometimes I might say sparkling wine, sometimes I might say champagne. But just bear in mind that champagne is the region. So one would assume that Champagne region would be the top producer. But just to give you the figures, which are interesting, Champagne produces 300 million bottles. Now, this is where the interesting level comes in. Prosecco, which has sort of dominated the sparkling wine industry, is on 600 million bottles. So they are on double Champagne. Carver, which is Spanish, is on 250 million, we're talking. And then MCC, which is good old South Africa, is on 10 million. So there's quite a difference in these numbers. But the big one, of course, is the growth of Prosecco. In 10 years, they went from 180 million bottles to 600 million bottles. There's the Prosecco from Italy only. It doesn't come from, it's like champagne from yes. champagne. They've got their own grape varietals. Yeah. Just, uh, just, let's just also be clear about something else with Prosecco. We talk about the, the second fermentation occurring in the bottle. So we make one level of wine, which is a still wine. We then restart the, the fermentation process in a bottle, and the second fermentation occurs in the bottle. With Prosecco, the second fermentation occurs in a tank, and that's called Chamant. And then that wine is transferred into the bottle. So it's a much, much cheaper way of producing a product. Hence, Prosecco being a much cheaper product and marketed as such. But the second fermentation does not occur in the bottle. Okay, so who invented sparkling wine? The French, the Italians? <laughs> Reg, you're opening up a, a can of worms here. It depends whether you're French or whether you're English. Right. So this is a fascinating story. And if you're, if you're French, you don't want to hear the story. If you're English, you do want to hear the story. Let's just take a few steps back here. Before sparkling wine even occurred, the area of Champagne was making a still wine. But unfortunately, it wasn't of a, of a very good quality. And what they were doing is bottling the still wine and sending it to England. But because, if you can imagine that the Champagne region is colder than England, I know it's difficult to grasp that. But anyway, so what would happen is when the bottle got to England, the fermentation started again because cold weather holds back fermentation. And the wine would start to ferment and then the bottles would explode. And it was seen then as an inferior product. Interestingly enough, Dom Perignon, the famous Dom Perignon, his first job was to try and find a way to stop the second fermentation, not to promote it. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. During this time, England was at war with Spain. And James I made a decree that all wood that 
was used for making glass bottles had to stop being burnt in furnaces and they would then have to fire those furnaces with coal and the wood withers then used to make warships but what happened was the coal was a much higher temperature than the wood so the glass of the bottle became stronger and could stand more pressure so when the next lot of wines came over to England and they fermented in the bottle the bottles never exploded and they ended up with a sparkling wine and that was actually the start of sparkling wine and that story is well documented so it can't be disputed and then that's when the french heard about that and they decided they better start getting their act together and that's when then dom perion started the process of working out how to control that fermentation in the bottle and hence the evolution of champagne at that point so champagne's actually an english invention then is that what you're saying by by default not by in, you know as you know rich so many things are invented by default not by by invention yeah. <laughs> yeah so yes yeah, I, it was I, I believe a lot of women have been involved in champagne making and a lot of people were there at the beginning like uh, Wirtlicke the Wirtlicke yeah Wirtlicke Madame Wirtlicke that's another fascinating um story because you know you look at the champagne industry now and it's a very very glamorous beautiful industry and consumed in the right sort of environments but champagne went through a very rocky period of production and in the early days of production they didn't have the technology to control the pressure and how much yeast they needed and how much sugar and so on so it was quite a problematic and a lot of the champagne houses went bankrupt so there's three ladies who took over bankrupt houses um Madame Berfcrico she lost her husband Lily Bollinger and Pomeray those three ladies took over those major champagne houses now this is where the story really gets interesting in those days all business including champagne was dominated by men and in fact it was illegal in France for a woman to be in business so when Madame Berfcrico inherited her winery she was 27 years old and she had to do something different and she had to now rebuild this business so what she did is the first angle she took is she realized that the workers were being treated really badly on the farms and they had no food it didn't have proper shelter and just had a a really miserable life so she decided that she would upgrade the living standards and the educational standards of her workers and in doing so she then got the productivity on those farms far ahead of her competitors so she ended up making a better product at a better price and with more control and more efficiently interestingly enough after that after she did that she was then appointed by the government of France to try and bring more ladies into the workplace and she spearheaded that whole movement and she also spearheaded the upliftment of her labor force which i think that concept of her still carries forward to today you want good efficiency and good productivity need a good happy workforce so we can all thank her for that well that's fantastic let's get closer to home champagne as you know is a very aspirational product so you've got a brand called morena 
which is a strange name in itself. Where does Morena come from? Well, once again, as I said earlier, you know, some things happen just by default. <laughs> so we were struggling to find a name for our wines. And we went to a concert by uh, an American singer, an opera singer called Josh Graban. He was playing at the Kirstenbosch Gardens. And he had a song called Mi Morena, which is a beautiful song. And in Spanish, it means dark, beautiful, sexy woman is your morena. And we thought, wow, that ticks all the boxes. There's always something about women in your life, Nick. I don't know what it is. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, but then it actually, it actually gets better after that. So after we got that name, we then realized that the second part of our national anthem, which people sort of struggle a little bit, starts with morena, da, 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 da. So that morena <laughs> in Cosa mm. means the godly head of the tribe or the clan, like, like Mandela would be, or somebody who's, who's the, who they look up as the chieftain of their tribe. So that was a very good for us. And it's a, it's a boutique. I, I've tasted the stuff. It's fantastic. I've got to tell you. Who do you see as your competitors in the champagne or the sparkling wine business here? Well, Reg, if I can, just before I answer that question, I would like to just say something that the wine industry and the champagne industry is the only industry that I've ever been involved with or, or been part of where competitors help each other and try and get a product that is desirable to a broader market. So, you know, what was interesting when, when we first started, um, three major producers in South Africa contacted me and came and helped me to get going. Now, you know, that was totally foreign to me, that type of angle in business. The big guys came around and, and to make sure that our product was of a high standard. So the thinking there is that you don't want somebody in our category to make a lousy product that would put consumers off the consumption of those products. It's, it's in everybody's interest that we all work together so obviously we all aspire to be champagne and i would say from the outset that we can never ever take anything away from champagne they have spent years marketing those products and they deserve every accolade that they could possibly get so let's just be be clear on that one we're not mm. ever going to say we are better or anything like that but having said that there are some fantastic but, but brands of yeah like like Bollinger, like uh, Vivclico, all those brands. Paul Roger, all those guys. Interestingly enough, if you're in Champagne, you've got the very big brands, but under that are tons of smaller producers, Drapier, those type of guys who actually produce a better quality than the big guys at a slightly lower price. So if you're a Champagne drinker, you need to try and find those people and purchase their products. You're actually getting better value. But now you're being shy about your own brand. Mirena. Okay, so let's go to my brand. So yeah. in South Africa, we spent, you know, a long time. Simonsuk was the first guy to, to make Carps of Funkel, a guy called Johan Milan, and he did a brilliant job. He actually bought some guys out from France to work on his farm for 10 years to kickstart the whole process. Mm -hmm. What's happened here in South Africa is, and I'll get to my brand, is that we have had a very close association with the Champagne region for them to help us and for us to get going to make sure that we're on the right track here. So I think that in the last sort of five years or so, 
our industry has really made huge, huge leaps and bounds in quality. So I think we can now stand, you know, with champagne houses quite comfortably on quality. I just want to know but, how you how you market your brand because you're a boutique brand, right? You don't have yes. millions and millions of brands to go and build your brand. And I think a lot no. of people in South Africa with smaller brands would love to know why your brand is so successful. When we started, we never wanted to have a commercially driven brand that you would see in a bottle store or in every restaurant all over the place. So we started with a with a one-on-one situation of marketing directly with our, our customers. So they'd come around to our farm and then I would do a tasting with them. And we then stayed away from traditional wine tastings where you get a glass thrust at you and everybody's trying to guess flavors and everybody's panicking because you're going to be asked what flavor it is and you've got no idea. (laughs) Anyway, so we decided we would go the lifestyle connection with our wines. So we'd sit in our cellar, we'd talk about the wines, we'd have fun, we'd play a bit of music, we'd do a few food pairings and tell a few stories and just try and get back to what I believe these products are all about. And that is people, fun, enjoyment. So we then built up a clientele doing that by pushing that type of concept, both at our farm and on wine shows and at the various festivals in Franschhoek. So over the years, we've built up a very nice clientele who are very, very loyal. And we, we try and correspond directly with them via newsletters and interesting things. So when I put out our newsletter, I don't just talk about the wines. I give them a few recipes. I tell them about a few things that are happening on the farm, a bit about the nature on our farm, etc. So now, as we stand now, I've been quite fascinated now that the coronavirus has hit and everybody's thinking of different ways of marketing. This falls squarely into my lap now because I've been marketing directly anyway. And we've just found that that connection has been just brilliant for us. It's just worked so well. It's a very personal approach. It's meeting people, greeting people, tastings. I know you give out a lot of your champagne for promotions, and I know you do some social media as well. What sort of social media do you do? Well, we do a newsletter and we correspond via um, WhatsApp and so on, but I've been a little bit not as good as I should have been on the social media. I think it's a growing market. I do worry on social media. I must be honest that I just find if you oversend stuff and you're over-communicating with a client, there gets a point where it loses its kind of like validity and you think, oh, no, not another flippant email or another WhatsApp or whatever. It is a very aspirational brand and you don't want to thrust it down people's throats. <laughs> um, but, Correct. If you know what I mean. Yeah. But because um, any aspirational brand, has to, you have to be almost gentle. It's not telling people what it's doing. It's relating to people. It's a relationship yes. you're developing. And I can yes. see what you're doing is developing a relationship around Morena and the people who drink Morena because they are so loyal. I mean, I'm one of them. I love Morena. Yes. And I know there are other boutique brands like Colmont and, and a few others. But I, I have to say, for me – and I'm not trying to boost you too much, <laughs> but I think Moraine <laughs> is definitely in the top two, three boutique-type brands in this country. So, I mean, that's a fantastic story. But let's go on a Thank little you. bit to the person behind the mask. What is Nick Davies <laughs> most scared of in life? 
<laughs> I think, you know, I must tell you, I've had a great life so far. So I'm, I must be honest that uh, I've really enjoyed things. I, I'm a very positive person. Um, I, I think that uh, to, to, to be, if I had to say something that would bother me as I've got a little bit older is not to become a grumpy old man that is negative and, you know, that doesn't see the brighter side of life. For me, that's very, very important. Unfortunately, I see a lot of people going that way. And I just believe it's a, it's a mental attitude to life that one's got to have. So I say to be positive really is for me, uh, think, you know, I, I just also just to, to go to the COVID thing. I think what, what COVID has really taught us, Reg, is that it's the simple things in life that really count and friendships and, you know, just doing the simple things. I know, you know, we all go have e-bikes now and we go into the mountains. So I just think that for me, I don't want to lose out on that. I have a, you know, last, a last go at all those lovely things with my friends and family. It falls smack into your strategy around Morena because that's what you do. That's who you are. It's very interesting that, that Morena is really suits your personality and is you. Because when I, you're a bubbly person and Morena is a terrific bubbly. Does that sound corny? I don't know. But anyway, um, <laughs> oh, and I believe you also play a bit of music. Oh, dear. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we're all, I think, what do you call them, uh, air guitarists and air banjo players and so on. But I started playing the banjo 45 years ago, and then I drifted along and drifted along. And uh, I never had the joy of playing with other people. And then in our valley about six years ago arrived a certain gentleman called Reg Lascaris, <laughs> who I'm now speaking to. And he, I heard through the grapevine, played the guitar. And we got together on the guitars and the banjos and so on. And then we suddenly started finding other musicians who had retired down in, um, in Franschhoek. And we were very, very privileged that a lot of them were top musicians in their day. And as you know, Reg, we started a band called Unhooked, mm. which we play for charity. We give all the, all the money to various charities, and you are very much part of that band. This is not about me. This is about this is about you. So <laughs> before you go down that route, <laughs> okay. So let's just go with the yeah. band and the music a little bit yeah. because it's part of it's part of the of, enjoyment of, of the, the whole lifestyle thing. Exactly, yeah. So exactly. I think that uh, you know, if I sort of thinking back to our wine tastings, yeah, I really believe standard wine tastings have got to be the most boring things ever. You have to add another dimension. So what we do is we put into that dimension food, uh, joy, fun, friends, music. and then, of course, music is so, the big uh, thing so for me. What, ad yeah. what, ad what advice, Nick, would you give to other people who have a small boutique brand like yours and want to build a brand? Is it a reflection of their personality? What advice would you give them? You know, Reg, I think what I'm going to say now applies to to not only a wine situation, it applies to general business in general. Um, I came from a business environment where you had to put long hours in. You, you know, there were ups and downs. There were failures. There were successes. And the, at the end of the day, it's all perseverance. You have to keep going. You have, you know, so when I came into the wine game, I used that same principle and I really – they call it leather on the pavement. You've got to go around. You have to put those hours in. There is no shortcut. And I think brands are built when the owner and the guys are actually at the forefront of promoting those brands. So if there was ever 
anybody who wanted to promote something, get out there, show your personality, be true to your brand, you know, make it authentic and be loyal to it. And it takes time. It takes years of building. It really does. Nothing's quick. You know, and be patient. I think the point is be patient because brands aren't built overnight. Uh, I mean, if you build it, someone builds a brand overnight, it's because they have such a unique selling proposition and you're in the IT business or something like that. But if you want to build a solid brand for the future, you live it, you breathe it, and you build it slowly and build it slowly. And that's why your brand is successful, and that's why people love Morena. Nick Davies, um, thank you very, very much for joining us. Can I add one little little note here, Reg, that I'd like to just put in is – about three years ago, every uh, year we have a, uh, a symposium with champagne producers that come to South Africa. And Moe Shandon came and talked at one of these events. And they told us they'd spent a million euros researching the sound of a bottle of champagne being opened. Now, you have to ask yourself a question. Why would you spend that sort of money on one sound? And so the conclusion of this whole thing was that that sound is so important to the brands and to champagne. And after I went to that symposium, if you go to a restaurant or a function and you hear that sound, everybody's head turns around to see what's going on. And even if you don't know the people who are celebrating something, you'll raise your glass and say, cheers, happy birthday. You've never seen them before. So Mo Shandon recognized that they had to look after that sound. And that, to me, just shows understanding your brand. So it shows the power of the category as well. And it is such an aspirational category. By the way, just a question I haven't asked you, which is an obvious one, is, is champagne or sparkling wine growing in South Africa? Ah, yeah. It's growing at 18%. And it's growing all around the world at those sort of figures. Most wine categories are standing still. Sparkling wines are taking off. I tried to work out why the other day. Is it broadening its base? Are there more and more youngsters coming in? Where is it growing? All over. It's growing mostly in the female audience between the ages of 25 and 40. You know, I think it's a lot to do with it's one of the few products which you share. You open a bottle and you share it amongst. So you get six people, one bottle, share it. And mm-hmm. I think it's that communal, celebratory, let's have fun kind of thing. You know, and interesting enough, when we have um, wine shows, our champagne show, you get groups of ladies attending. And I always ask them, where are your husbands or where are your boyfriends? No, we left them at home. They, we, they're not interested. We come to enjoy ourselves. Uh, and just one final mind. question before before we have, we have to go: How much is a bottle of Morena? One six five is our entry level. Yeah, that's for a three and a half year, and then we go up to three ninety five, where the wine is sat on the lease for ten years. But one six five, one nine five is another one in that sort of category. We are lucky in that because we uh, sell directly to our clients, we can keep the price down. Because there's no middleman taking a cut. Thanks for listening to Market Share with me, Reg Lascaris. I'll be back soon with another episode giving my take on brands and companies, big and small, in South Africa and elsewhere. So chat soon. Cheers.